Consider for a moment you are the inventory manager of your neighborhood grocery store. You are charged with deciding how much produce you should purchase and place out on the shelves at any given time. Too much at once and there won't be enough customers to purchase it and it all goes to waste. Too little and you will have a swarm of angry customers demanding more produce so they can feed their families. In the body, various hormones act as managers, pulling calcium out of your bones or storage and into your blood or the shelves. Others work to oppose this pull to ensure there isn't too much calcium or produce released into the blood. In this case, the manager has become over-eager and there is an excess of produce on the shelves and it is now going to waste. Today, our patient has hypercalcemia and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Bones, Stones, Moans, and Groans, and is all about hypercalcemia. First, for some minute physiology. Calcium is a divalent cation that acts as a key in the body. It opens gates, both metaphorically and literally. These gates represent different physiological pathways, muscular contraction, neurotransmission, and white blood cell activation, to mention a few. However, these pathways can be thrown into disarray if too many gates are open, as in hypercalcemia. Calcium homeostasis is complicated, but it is regulated by two key hormonal pathways, parathyroid hormone, or PTH, and calcitonin. The parathyroid gland has calcium-sensing receptors and can detect when the calcium levels in the blood are low. When this happens, the parathyroid gland releases PTH, which stimulates calcium release from the bones. At the same time, PTH also stimulates conversion of vitamin D to its active form. Together, PTH and vitamin D act to increase gastrointestinal and renal absorption of calcium. Conversely, calcitonin, which is stored in the parafollicular cells of the thyroid, can sense when the calcium blood levels are high and antagonizes this process. Together, PTH and calcitonin work to maintain stable calcium levels. As one of the handful of central electrolytes of the body, hypercalcemia is a common laboratory diagnosis. A normal calcium is approximately 2.2 to 2.6 millimoles per liter, though your lab's values may slightly differ. Okay, so when asked to assess a patient with hypercalcemia, always remember patient safety first. Assess ABCs and ensure that your patient is hemodynamically stable. Assess for signs and symptoms of severe hypercalcemia. These include severe dehydration and hypovolemic shock, altered mental status, or cardiac arrhythmias. If you're ever unsure or uncomfortable, don't hesitate to get some help from your supervising resident. When assessing your patient, you must first determine whether a patient is truly hypercalcemic or ensure that the calcium isn't falsely normal. As a circulating cation, Calcium is heavily albumin-bound in a pH-dependent fashion. Because of this, calcium can be falsely elevated in the setting of hyperalbuminemia and acidemia. On the other hand, patients who are hypoalbuminemic can have a falsely normal calcium level. To correct for an albumin less than 40 grams per liter, you can approximate the true calcium level by increasing the reported calcium level by 0.2 for each decrease in 10 grams per liter of albumin. A simpler and more accurate method to confirm hypercalcemia is to measure the ionized or free unbound calcium, which is the metabolically active form. Once you've confirmed that your patient is hypercalcemic, you can then stratify them based on their degree of hypercalcemia. 
Mild hypercalcemia has a calcium of 2.6 to 3.0 millimoles per liter, moderate 3.0 to 3.4, and severe 3.4 or more, or an ionized above 1.7 millimoles per liter. There are four general causes of hypercalcemia based on its physiology, which collectively have a wide differential diagnosis. The first category is increased calcium absorption, which occurs in the setting of excess calcium ingestion or excess vitamin D. Common causes of excess calcium ingestion includes milk alkali syndrome from milk, or more commonly these days antacids, which are essentially calcium carbonate. Vitamin D excess can also occur if patients have excessive intake of vitamin D, but can also be related to increased vitamin D activity, such as from granulomatous disease like sarcoidosis or tuberculosis. The second is increased liberation of calcium stores, our bones. There is normally a balance of bone building and bone destruction. However, increased activation of osteoclasts, a type of bone-dissolving white blood cell, will release more calcium into the blood. Conditions that cause bone destruction, such as osteomyelitis, or metastatic bony lesions, or disease such as multiple myeloma, can also cause hypercalcemia outside of the osteoclast-mediated pathway. The third cause is decreased calcium secretion from the kidney. This can be from simple dehydration, renal failure, familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, or drugs that increase tubular calcium reabsorption, most commonly thiazide diuretics or lithium. As you might remember from our minute physiology, parathyroid hormone acts on all these calcium pathways. Therefore, excess parathyroid hormone, as in the case of primary, secondary, or tertiary hyperparathyroidism, will lead to hypercalcemia by increasing renal and gastrointestinal calcium absorption, liberating calcium stores from our bones, and reducing renal calcium excretion. A related hormone, parathyroid-related peptide, or PTHRP, is synthesized and released by some malignancies, such as renal cell carcinoma, squamous cell lung cancer, or breast cancer. PTHRP acts also on the parathyroid hormone receptors and causes hypercalcemia through a similar mechanism. The final cause of elevated calcium is from pleiotropic effects of medications or the unintended consequences of other conditions. The most common of these is long-term lithium use. However, hypercalcemia is also associated with pheochromocytomas, adrenal insufficiency, and VIPomas. Now moving on to history. On history, you want to consider the broad differential that can lead to hypercalcemia, as well as the symptoms associated with it. The classic rhyme of bones, stones, abdominal moans, and psychic groans represents symptoms of bone pain, nephrolithiasis, moans of abdominal pain from peptic ulcer disease and or constipation, and agitation, usually depressed mood, anxiety, or confusion. Many of these symptoms, however, occur with more long-standing and severe hypercalcemia. Acute hypercalcemia more typically features abdominal pain from constipation or pancreatitis, polydipsia from dehydration, or neurological status changes in extremis. Be sure to check the patient's volume status on physical exam. It is also key to take a good past medical history and medication history to look for both diseases and drugs that can precipitate hypercalcemia. It is also important to perform a full malignancy history, as well as ask for constitutional symptoms. Clinically, it's important to assess for the patient's level of consciousness and cognitive function, as well as perform a full cardiac and respiratory exam. On abdominal exam, look for signs of pancreatitis, such as abdominal distension and epigastric pain, and signs of nephrolithiasis, such as CVA tenderness. 
Attention should be paid to urine output, as calcium can cause significant oliguric or anuric acute kidney injury. Hypercalcemia is a laboratory diagnosis, and there's a collection of investigations that should be performed anytime you find it, in order to refine your differential and monitor for severity. Electrolytes and creatinine, a full set of extended electrolytes, particularly a phosphate level, an ionized calcium, serum albumin, a venous blood gas, and TSH levels. Order an ECG to ensure there are no arrhythmias or shortened QT interval related to hypercalcemia. Now moving on to diagnosis. The first step in identifying the underlying etiology is to send a PTH level to determine whether or not the hypercalcemia is parathyroid hormone mediated. A significantly elevated PTH level is supportive of a diagnosis of hyperparathyroidism. If the PTH is normal or low, then you need to proceed further with your investigations. The available history should help guide your clinical suspicion, but investigations to consider are a 125-dihydroxyvitamin D level and parathyroid hormone-related peptide. Furthermore, if you have suspicion for multiple myeloma, order serum protein electrophoresis, also known as SPEP, with immunofixation in addition to serum-free light chains. And finally, treatment. Treatment for hypercalcemia will depend on the severity. Anyone with moderate to severe hypercalcemia over 3.4 or an ionized calcium over 1.75 should be transferred to a monitored setting with telemetry because of the known arrhythmia risk. The initial treatment, however, is the same regardless of the cause. IV fluids to facilitate calcium dilution and excretion through the urine. Your goal is to target a urine output of 100 to 150 milliliters per hour by providing the patient with an IV fluid bolus if needed, followed by 200 to 250 milliliters an hour of IV fluid for at least the following 12 hours. We suggest a crystalloid solution, either Ringer's lactate or normal saline. This will be enough to treat 80 to 90 percent of your patients. However, persistent hypercalcemia should be treated with bisphosphonates, such as pimidronate or zoledronic acid, calcitonin or denosumab. Bear in mind that bisphosphonates typically achieve their maximum effect in one week and should not be expected to lower the calcium levels immediately. If you require immediate alteration of calcium levels, such as in concern for cardiac arrhythmia, calcitonin works much faster and can lower the serum calcium in about six hours. However, the calcitonin receptors on osteoclasts rapidly downregulate in a phenomenon known as tachyphylaxis, and the therapeutic effect of calcium is lost after approximately 36 to 48 hours. In general, furosemide is not used to treat hypercalcemia. However, in patients who become volume overloaded but have ongoing hypercalcemia, furosemide can be added to facilitate diuresis and allow you to continue to administer high-volume fluids. Finally, for patients with intractable and symptomatic hypercalcemia despite aggressive medical management, dialysis may be required for rapid calcium clearance, although this is necessary in only a very small proportion of patients. And that's it. In summary, here's five takeaway points for hypercalcemia management. One, hypercalcemia is usually not life-threatening, but should be promptly treated and worked up. Two, hypercalcemia has signs, symptoms, and causes that span the entire body. Three, always get an albumin and an ionized calcium for more accurate interpretation. Four, you can start treatment the same way regardless of the cause. IV fluids, the solution to pollution is dilution. And five, hypercalcemia is a symptom. Always find and treat the cause or you will probably end up having a patient who becomes hypercalcemic all over again. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Bones, Stones, Groans, and Moans on Hypercalcemia. This episode was written by Dr. Ankur Goswami, internal medicine resident, and Dr. Mats Junik, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Ali Prabtani, endocrinologist, and Dr. Daniel Brant Vegas, general internist. This podcast was recorded and produced by Dr. Leah Karianopoulos. The internet work was created by Allison Lyon and developed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morale. Supervision by Dr. Daniel Brant Vegas and music by Lakshmi Santamon. Don't forget to head to our website, www.theinternetwork.com, to check out the infographic to go along with this podcast. This has been The Internet Work. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you come back soon.